Hi there, and welcome to One Body, One Life, proudly sponsored by Jamae's Fine Foods. I'm Vicky Nguyen, and I'm on a personal mission to live to 120, and I would absolutely love to take you on this journey with me. This fortnightly show is focused on longevity and understanding how we can all live longer and stronger through diet, exercise, lifestyle, nutrition, and so on. Each episode, we will uncover tips and tricks to living your healthiest and happiest life for as long as physically possible. I'll be chatting to the experts as well as people who have defied the odds and explore various treatments and modalities to help us all reach optimal wellness. So Dr. Alan Desmond, medical doctor, gastroenterologist, general physician and author, or best-selling author, should we say, of the plant-based diet revolution. He currently lives with his family in Devon, UK, and works as a full-time NHS consultant. Certified in both gastroenterology and general internal medicine, Alan completed his specialist training in Ireland and Oxford. He has special interests in the role of diet in the prevention and treatment of digestive diseases. As a doctor specialising in gut health, Alan has made evidence-based dietary advice an essential part of his clinical practice. The results he has seen in his gastroenterology clinic have led him to become a dedicated advocate for the gut health benefits and overall health benefits of a whole food plant-based approach to nutrition. Dr. Alan Desmond believes that we can transform our health and revolutionise our quality of life by simply eating more plants, and that the evidence overwhelmingly supports a whole food plant-based diet as the optimal diet for human health and longevity. The more plant-based, the better. Alan has presented at numerous international conferences alongside renowned plant-based advocates and has also published several influential research papers in the field of inflammatory bowel disease. So welcome to the show, Alan. Vicky, thanks very much for having me. Um, really kind of you to invite me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. I'm so curious and I'm so excited to have this chat with you today because I myself have had my own fair share of gut issues. So this is um, a really great opportunity. So tell us, give us your, the listeners your backstory. Like how did you land here where you are today? Oh, of course. Well, I'm a, I'm a doctor, um, Vicky, as you said. I went into medical school in the mid-90s, graduated 2001, Became a consultant or attending uh, consultant gastroenterologist in 2012. And when you're a doctor who deals with people with digestive health problems for a living, you soon realize that every single patient asks you, what about food, doctor? Yes. Is there any food that I should be eating or avoiding? And uh, as a gastroenterologist, I responded to those questions that my patients, that every single patient, I would say, 99% of patients would ask their gastroenterologists about food. So I responded to those requests um, from my patients and throughout my career, as well as reading the literature and medical journals and textbooks and going to conferences around the latest medication or the latest endoscopic technique or, or, or whatever. Right. I've also been looking at the uh, latest research on the impact of food on our digestive health and overall health so that when my patients say to me, what about food, doctor? I can give them some really well-informed and evidence-based recommendations. And I'm really lucky to work with uh, teams of dietitians who are on the same page. And uh, once I started talking to my patients about eating more fruit, eating more vegetables, eating more whole grains and reducing their intake of animal products and removing um, highly processed junk food from their diet, I started seeing some incredible um, changes in my patients at clinic and incredible successes. And that just led me 
to become more um, more vocal about this yes. and to start speaking at conferences and taking every opportunity to educate the public, uh, my fellow health professionals, doctors, patients, policymakers on the fact that food is incredibly important and food really does matter. So what about yourself and your own journey? Well, I mean, uh, well, when you're a do- when you're training to be a doctor, um, so I was in. I went to med school in '95, graduated 2001. So from about 2001 to 2012, apart for a few from a few breaks, um, I was for research, etc. I was living that sort of intense, dramatic, <laughs> um, incredibly all-consuming life. Yes, that is the life of a of a of a hospital doctor in training right um so working you know Long between hours. 70 and 110 hours a week That's... doing 36 hour shift 110 hour weekends no recognized break time bleep going all night long um moving from doing in, in within within an hour you would go from you know assisting at a, a cardiac arrest in the emergency department to doing some kind of very mundane and boring clerical work to get some lab results ready for the ward round, etc. So it won't surprise you to hear that among doctors in training, um, diet and health and their individual diet and health um, seems to drop down the priority list. Absolutely. Um, So so I couldn't claim that when I was a uh, young doctor, that my diet and lifestyle were healthy because they just weren't. By def- almost by default, they just weren't. Yes. Um, sleep deprivation was the norm. Um, just grabbing food at the hospital canteen when you could was the norm. But as I progressed through my career and became more senior, and then in 2012, I'm the attending of the consultant. I'm sitting down with my patients, and now my name is on the chart, and it's my responsibility to work with the patients so they get the best possible outcome. Yes. Um. As I began to make this a really crucial part of my own practice, it became very evident to me, uh, Vicky, as you can imagine, yes. that I need to walk the talk. Yes. Um, so from about 2016, um, me, my wife, my family have eaten a completely plant-based diet. Amazing. Um, so a whole food plant-based diet. And I didn't identify myself as having any specific health problems when I made that change. Right. So I don't have a personal story of health transformation. Okay. Um, but I think I did notice that I lost a little bit of excess body fat. Um, I found that in the gym and out for a run, my recovery was a little bit better. Um, ironically, as a gastroenterologist, I used to get a little bit of heartburn and that went away. Um, but I don't have a personal journey of health transformation. Okay. The health transformations for me happen in the clinic. Yes, of course. But how refreshing to have a doctor like you to take it upon himself to want to improve the patient's life and look deeper into it. Because, I mean, most of the time, as you know, a lot of doctors, and I don't know if it's because of all the red tape that goes along with that role, but um, there's not a lot of talk about diet and how you can help yourself through the foods that you eat. You know, it's often just medication prescribed, you know, it's that kind of short fix or, you know, cover the symptom instead. No, you're absolutely right. Right. And it's, um, I mean, I, I prescribe medications too. So I, I'm still a conventionally trained and practicing um, gastroenterologist. But when we look, when we speak to our patients about getting healthy, we need to recognize 
um, that the you know the standard Western diet, which is the prevalent approach to food in countries like Australia, the UK, Ireland, and the United States, etc., these high income countries, the standard Western diet, which is a high meat, high dairy approach to food, high in processed food, high in junk food, um, low in fruits, vegetables, beans, legumes, nuts and seeds, and low in fiber, low in plants, yes. is actually the major driver of poor health in the world today. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm from Ireland. That's where I grew up and trained. That's where my family are. Um, but I now live with my wife and kids in the UK, and that's where I practice. And in the UK alone, dietary factors account for more healthy years lost and more disease and disability than alcohol and drug use combined. The food that we eat causes more lives and uh, healthy years of life lost than lack of exercise, for example, or air pollution. And in in the US, food is the number one cause of healthy years lost. Exactly. Um, so, So as a doctor or a health professional or a health advocate or a practice nurse or whatever your role is, in helping people to optimize their health. If you are telling your patients to not smoke, avoid alcohol or keep their alcohol intake really low, not to do illicit drugs and to exercise, then you've got to be talking to them about food as well. Because food is a bigger driver of poor health than all of those things. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of it, like people need to consider that what they eat, that old adage, that old saying, you are what you eat. I mean, it's virtually, it's true because your food is what feeds your blood and nourishes your body and your cells and your brain and all of that. So it makes perfect sense. But tell us, was there a particular turning point in your career where you said, okay, this is enough. We need to look deeper at what's happening with, and seeing the results when you were prescribing more plant-based. Was there a particular turning point for you? Well, in terms of my clinical practice, I think the turning point came for me just a couple of years after I became a consultant or an attending because I was basically finding a way to bring this information into my practice and starting with very simple recommendations to my patients because, you know, Vicky, we live in a country where, you know, people get 9% of the calories from fresh fruits and vegetables where people get, on average, 60% of the calories from ultra-processed foods. Yes. Whole grain consumption, legume consumption is at a, at, at a historic low in terms of human history, okay? Yeah. The industrialization of our food chain has really um, destroyed um, the sort of meals that we choose to eat. The meals we eat are so far removed from the meals consumed by the healthiest populations in the world yes. and recommended by... Uh, you know, international experts as to what makes up a healthy diet, that when we start talking to food um, to patients in the clinic, we need to start really um, gently. So I, I would start talking to my patients about, okay, look, we've gone through everything. We're going to get some tests. You know, you're going to have your colonoscopy, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to make sure there's not any serious diseases at play here. But while you're here with me at clinic, I'm just going to ask you a few simple questions about alcohol and cigarettes, of course, always important. But how many pieces of fruit do you eat every day? Mm. How many servings of vegetables do you eat every day? How many servings of whole grains do you eat every day? And just those three simple questions, they only take a few moments to go through with a patient, um, will often identify the first target for healthy dietary change. Because Mm. if that person is struggling with bloating and constipation or irregular bowel habit, and if they say to me, look, I don't really eat much fruit. I sometimes will eat an apple each day. And I don't really have vegetables 
um, regularly. I'm, I might have some broccoli with my um, with my evening meal. And if they say to me, when you say whole grain, Doc, what exactly do you mean? Are you referring to the bread with the seeds on the top? Or, or what do you, what is that? I don't, no one's ever told me about, about this. What's a whole grain? So very often that's how that conversation will go down in a clinic. Yes. And if you can point, if you can have that conversation, explain to the person how important these foods are for gut microbial health and our overall health and our digestive health, yes. and then point them to some resources the next time they come back to your clinic, um, they may well say to you, oh my goodness, I'm now eating three pieces of food per day. I'm focusing on whole grains at each yeah. meal. And yes, I'm now eating three or four servings of vegetables per day. I'm losing Amazing. weight. Yes. I've never felt healthier. My yeah. bowel habit has become regular. Um, tell me more. You know, What yes. other changes can I make? But, but gladly in my practice, uh, for patients who are receptive to the information, I'll have already pointed them towards some resources. So yes. the, the stories can be really transformative. And I tell a few of those stories in, in my book, like the, um, the young lady that I met at clinic, it must be back in 2013 now that I met her. But she was a young woman. She was in her 30s. Um, she'd already gathered a long list of um, medical diagnoses, including type 2 diabetes, um, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, she was living with obesity, and she had dreadful, what, what had been labeled as, um, you know, very severe irritable bowel syndrome. Right. Um, so she'd, been, she'd already been to see um, the, um, obstetri- excuse me, the gynecologist. She'd even had surgery to open up her tummy to see if there was any problems in there. She'd had tons of scans and tests, etc. And she came to see me and uh, we went through um, her medical history, all the multiple scans and scopes and blood tests and surgery that she'd had. And she was a patient, Vicky, who'd been reassured by multiple people that there was nothing serious wrong. Crazy. She just had severe IBS. Right. But of course, this wasn't helping her. Her exactly. life was becoming almost impossible. Yes. Yeah, right. She was, she was in the emergency department with abdominal pain. So when I saw her, we went, to, I mean, she'd had tons of investigations already. And as it happened, I did recommend one more scan, which was an MRI scan of her small bowel. But we had the conversation. And yes. like many people, she she had this idea that had been given to her by um, friends or the media, etc., that all carbohydrates cause weight gain. Right. So she av- she'd been avoiding eating whole grains. She almost never ate fruit. Um, she was worried because she had pre-diabetes that fruit would put up her blood sugars. So she was avoiding fruit. So... We had those, that basic conversation. We made some, just a simple agreement. She would have three or four servings of whole grains per day. She would begin to snack on whole fruits and she would opt for legumes and healthy plant-based sources of protein right. wherever possible. And when she came back to me after three months, um, the MRI scan had been clear. So I explained it all that, explained all that to her. But she told me that her life had changed completely Amazing. because after just, th- just after three months of actively correcting what had been labeled severe IBS, but in my opinion was severe fiber deficiency. Right. Her symptoms had resolved entirely. Wow. She'd experienced healthy weight loss without counting calories. Her type two diabetes was far better to easier to control. Her HbA1c blood test had improved very significantly. She was well on the way to correcting her fiber deficiency completely. And her husband 
had been supporting her along the way and it had been transformative for them. I mean, I'm not blaming Emma and her husband for their approach to food. This is the this is the approach to food that is given up to us yes. in countries like this, is being yes. the way to eat and being, you know, convenient and correct. And it's yeah. advertised to us and promoted as a really fun and, you know, modern way to eat or yes. however we want to phrase it. Because of all this information, people don't eat fresh whole plants. Exactly. People are scared to eat healthy carbohydrates yes. and an unhealthy low fiber yes. diet yes. has become the absolute norm. But So when you get consultations like that happening in your clinic, um, I was talking to my wife, wife recently about this. I saw another patient at my clinic recently, a lady with um, ulcerative colitis who'd really transformed her health by making the switch to a whole food plant-based diet. And at the end of the consultation, she just made this comment to me at the very end of our consultation. Uh, she said, oh, you know, um, I, I've got your book and I'm really looking forward to trying the uh, savory farinata with the uh, spinach and garlic tonight. <laughs> and, I thought, oh, that's, and I thought, oh, that's great. Oh, thank you. I didn't, you didn't need to buy the book, but thank you, lovely. And um, I, ca- I came home to my wife that evening and I was telling her about this young woman uh, this is a different patient now. We've had a yes, tremendous yeah. success. And I said, you know, I've never had a patient at my clinic tell me, oh, I just picked up that immune suppressant prescription <laughs> yeah, that you exactly. prescribed. Yes. And I, I, I can't wait to try it tonight. You know, it's my first night trying it. It's going to be amazing. So, so, the, so I would really, if there are any health professionals listening to this podcast, whether your specialty is um, respiratory health, cardiac health, endocrine, endocrine health, you're dealing with patients with type 2 diabetes, um, uh, obesity, or any, any chronic disease. They've got nothing to lose yes. by making the shift to a healthy, whole food plant-based diet. And if you, start, if, you, if you start these conversations with your patients, it can transform their health and your approach to medicine. Totally. 100%. So what are the most common diseases and gut issues you treat or that you find? I mean, obviously, we've all heard of irritable bowel and bloatedness and all that. But what are the most common ones in, that you've come across? Well, the, the, the fact, as you know, is that I mean, you even alluded to this yourself, that digestive health problems have become almost the norm yeah. in countries where we have a kind of a westernized, industrialized lifestyle and food chain, um, which is worrying uh, generally for gastroenterologists. I mean, I've often commented to people how Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, uh, taught his disciples two and a half millennia ago yes. that all disease begins in the gut yes. or all health begins in the gut. Absolutely. And if that's true, and, and I think it is true in many ways, uh, particularly when we talk about the importance of the gut microbiome, if it is true that all health begins in the gut, then we're in trouble, Vicky, because... Yes. In, so, for example, if we look at the U.S., the home of the standard Western diet or standard American diet. So one in three adults under the age of 50 have diverticular disease. Mm. It's incredibly prevalent in high-income countries. It's a fiber deficiency ah. um, problem predominantly. Yep. You get these pouches in the side of your large bowel. They can become inflamed and infected. They can cause perforation. They can, right. you know, in most cases, it's quite a, it's more of a, a bothersome condition to have rather than life-threatening. But right. um, like all gastroenterologists, I've had patients who've died from diverticular perforation. So it wow. is possible to to end your life through a diagnosis of diverticular disease. Um, colorectal cancer, sadly, is something yeah. that I deal with a lot in my clinical practice. 
Um, I'm, I'm a colonoscopist, so I do a lot of camera tests okay. to check people to see if they've got precancerous polyps or cancers. And I deal with colorectal cancer a lot. And our patients are getting younger um, in the US now. The screening guidelines have just dropped to say adults at the age of 45 should begin screening for colorectal cancer right. because colorectal cancer is so prevalent in the US now um, thanks to the standard American diet and lifestyle. Another disease which has emerged very much um, in high-income countries in the last 20 years since I was at medical school is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Oh, or that from? Or So this is a condition whereby our liver is infiltrated by fat tissue. Goodness. So when we look at a scan of your liver, um, it looks kind of, well, if, if we draw the comparison to the butcher's counter, it yes. looks very well marbled. It's right. got a lot of fat in it. Kobe beef um, Which isn't... <laughs> Yeah, we, yeah, exactly, right? Which isn't a healthy state for a human liver. Right. And that causes inflammation in the liver. Um, about 25% of people with the abnormal fat in their liver will develop um, inflammation, which we call non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. Right. So they have hepatitis, inflammation of their liver. Goodness. And, uh, and a significant number of those patients will go on to develop cirrhosis and liver failure. Goodness. Um, something that we've always associated with alcohol yes. use, right? But but this is so prevalent right now in the US between 80 and 100 million people are living with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. In the UK, yes. about 20% of people under the age of 30 already have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So thanks to that, in the US, um, this is now the most is becoming the most common cause of chronic liver disease and is the leading reason for females in the US to need a liver transplant. Goodness. And how and why is it that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is now the most common reason for needing a liver transplant in the US and uh, for females whereas 50 years ago it didn't exist or it was extremely uncommon. It's because the standard American diet which we've already described. Yep. So a high animal product High processed exactly. food, high processed sugar diet yep, yep. is the perfect diet to give you a swollen, fat, fat liver. infiltrated liver. Goodness. Wow. So it's the overconsumption of the meat, the dairy, and like you say, that Western diet that's caused that. That's disgusting. Yeah, and, also, and, also the and also the lack of all those healthy foods. I mean, when we look at dietary intakes in countries like the US, I mean, so a few years ago, as you know, the Eat Lancet Medical Journal, excuse me, the Lancet Medical Journal, which is one of our global leading medical journals, um, said about answering that incredibly important question that all my patients ask me. What should I eat? Mm. But they were looking to answer that question for everybody in the yes, world. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the three and a half billion people who get too much food, the 800 million people who are suffering from um, lack of access to food, what's a blueprint for the planet? Mm. What would it look like if we were all eating in a way that would make sure we were super healthy, as healthy as we could be, in a world where food is the major driver of disease? Mm. What should we be doing? So they got a... Uh, they handpicked 38 experts from places like Harvard, University of Oxford, University of London, and got them to look at the evidence. And they concluded that we should be trying to move the world as far as possible towards an unprocessed, 
plant predominant, plant based or plant exclusive approach to food, Perfect. where half of our food should be fruits and vegetables, mm. but a quarter should be healthy whole grains, and the remainder should be make up, made up of protein, particularly protein rich plants like legumes, beans, peas, split peas, lentils, that sort of thing, with maybe with a little bit of added unsaturated oils from plants. Mm. and meat, eggs and dairy should be regarded as optional. And if you're in a country where you have the luxury of pretty much being able to eat whatever you choose to, you should regard chicken, fish, eggs and red meat as optional. And if you do consume them, you should be consuming very little, maybe an ounce of chicken or fish per day, half an egg, maybe, you know, one serving of red meat every two to three weeks. Mm. And that's a recipe for excellent gut health. And Hippocrates was right. It's also a recipe for excellent overall health. And when the Eat Lancet uh, panel of experts um, looked at decades of evidence on human nutrition and health, they predicted if we could get everybody in the world to, to eat like that, if we could get them the resources and the food and the education, that we could prevent more than 12 million unnecessary deaths per year. Wow. N- not to mention, Vicky, hundreds of millions fewer cardiac stents, mm. bypasses, courses of chemotherapy for preventable cancers, prescriptions for statins, blood pressure medications, admissions to hospital, colorectal cancer, perforated diverticular, diverticular disease, etc. So in many ways, although a lot of people still might hear a doctor like me or any person um, advocating the benefits of unprocessing your diet and eating more plants, The fact is that the evidence is pretty much in, and this is why a plant-based approach to food has been endorsed as a healthy choice with specific health benefits Mm. by so many organizations like the British Dietetic Association, the American Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, the Canadian Healthy Eating Guidelines are Mm. plant-based up front now, the American Cancer Society, the World Health Organization. The American Heart Association have put very clearly on their website that whether you're thinking of reducing or giving up meat entirely, it's likely to benefit your health. Yes. In fact, last year, August of 2020, the American Medical Association, which is one of the world's oldest and largest professional organizations for doctors, wrote a letter to the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, who are responsible for writing the dietary guidelines for Americans. And they were in the process of updating those guidelines. And the AMA wrote to the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, and said, we doctors would like you, the USDA, to stop putting meat and dairy in the dietary guidelines as necessary food groups. As necessary food groups. Yes. Incredible. And pointing out the fact that they're drivers of disease and not necessary. So I think the, um, I mean, the title of the book is The Plant-Based Diet Revolution. Of course, the the secret is the revolution's already started, Vicky. I just want more people (laughs) to read the science and eat the food. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's very obvious that good digestive health is essential, no doubt about it. But can you please explain to listeners why that is? Well, in, in my book, at North Press, I do say that good digestive health is essential. And obviously, we've talked already about many of the benefits mm. of, a, um, of a healthy intake of food. But really, when it comes down to it, and this is one of the things that attracted me into gastroenterology as a practice, is if you've got poor digestive health, you're going to have a bad day every day. Yes. Because food is so important to us. Yeah. We 
if you've got good digestive health in the morning, you wake up in the morning hungry. Yes. You're planning your first meal of the day. If you're heading off to the office, you're already thinking, oh, what will I have for lunch? Yeah, yeah. Will I take something with me? Will I meet a friend? Will I hit the, you know, that, that my favorite little food place down the street from the office? And as soon as you've had that meal, you're planning, what will I have when I get home for my evening meal? Yeah. What have I got in the fridge? Or you might be texting your partner, say, hey, what are we having tonight? What's your fancy for a meal tonight? Mm. So if we are unable to sit down with friends when possible in pandemic times, if we're not able to enjoy food and the pleasure of eating and everything that comes with it, our quality of life becomes very, very difficult. And when we look at surveys among individuals with severe digestive health issues like Crohn's disease, mm. um, we see that among patients with Crohn's disease, 75% of patients will say that they do not have a good quality of life. And that is because their digestive health is not good. So yes. for me as a gastroenterologist, helping people to get back to good digestive health is key. Absolutely. I mean, I know myself, if I eat something that doesn't suit my body, that feeling of being bloated is just such an uncomfortable feeling. So um, you can only imagine people who have much worse gut issues, you know, how they'd be feeling. So you're, you're absolutely right there. So my, my grandmother died, my dad's mum died of bowel cancer many, many years ago. And as part of my dad's, like his longevity plan, he was recommended to have a colonoscopy every two years. So is it true, are gastro, and what do you call them, gastric diseases hereditary? And if so, how is that so? Well, like most conditions that have become common in high-income countries, um, it's a little bit of both. Okay. okay. So in, in many cases, and including colorectal cancer, yep. um, there is a little bit of both. So you do need to have a genetic predisposition, perhaps, mm -hmm. to developing a colorectal cancer. Um, but of course, colorectal cancer is so common yes. in countries where we eat the standard Western diet now um, that it, it can't all be about genetics, right? right because right. if we look, there was a nice study done a few years ago in the United States and rural South Africa. So we know, I mean, the epidemiological data tells us that in the United States, if you're an African-American adult, you've got about a 1 in 15, maybe 1 in 17 chance of developing colorectal cancer in your lifetime. Very common. Yep. That's why we need screening. Right. Okay, and screening remains important. Yes. And having surveillance tests, um, like you mentioned your father having, um, are important. But if we go to rural South Africa and we look at um, African adults yes. we, living in a rural setting, we find that colorectal cancer is almost unheard of. So it can't all be about genetics, right? Yes. It just can't be. And there are certain genetic uh, conditions that make your colorectal cancer risk very high, like Lynch syndrome or um, FAP. But if you don't have one of those syndromes, yes. then it's predominantly a diet and lifestyle right. yeah. problem. Now, if you look at, at that study that I mentioned that was done in the US and rural Africa a few years ago, uh, at the start of that study, they got these all these volunteers from the US and these volunteers from rural Africa. And these amazing volunteers all went through a colonoscopy. And 50% of the Americans had precancerous bowel polyps or adenomas in their large bowel. They, they didn't find a single adenoma in the African population. Wow. There was none. That's crazy. Nobody had a precancerous polyp. And they, they went on to analyze things like their uh, mucosal proliferation rate, uh, their gut microbiome makeup, 
their production of uh, short-chain fatty acids, yes. which are beneficial, yeah. their production of secondary bile acids, which are, are pro-carcinogenic. Yes. And of course, what they found is that the Americans, on every measure, were high risk for colorectal cancer. Right. And the Africans, on every measure, were low risk for colorectal cancer. Incredible. And... But what they did next was really incredible. They just got those two groups of volunteers yes. to switch up their diets for two weeks. Oh, goodness. They just got them to change the food that they put on their plate for two weeks. Yes. So now the um, the Americans are having, uh, for breakfast, they're having like spinach and red pepper and onions and corn fritters. They're having mango slices and kale salad, napkin yes. potato salad. They're having 55 grams of fiber per day. They're getting 70% of the calories from whole carbohydrates. Yes. And, and now the African volunteers have got two weeks of having sausage and pancakes, spaghetti Ew. and meatballs, <laughs> yeah. hot dogs and beans, roast beef and mashed potato. Yes. They're getting 21% of the calories from carbs. They're getting half the calories from fat and 12 grams of fiber per day. They're eating a standard American diet yes. for two weeks. And they came back, did all their analysis after just two weeks. And the risk profiles had completely flipped. Wow. On every measure, the Americans now had a very low predicted risk of developing colorectal cancer. And the Africans, on every measure, had a high risk profile for developing colorectal cancer in just two weeks. That's incredible. So, uh, the, it's incredible just by switching up the food they put on their plate three times a day. But amazing in such a short time that those results can flip like that. No, you're right. I mean, this was a short-term study, um, but, you know, the, it was just a two-week study, but a very detailed study. Yes, right? yeah. Um, but, but it's just an incredible paper. And, of course, this reflects what we know um, in clinical practice. And we know when we look at the evidence that if we want to have patients reduce their risk of colorectal cancer, we need to talk to them mm. about eating more fruits and vegetables, eating more whole grains, completely avoiding red and processed meats. Yes. Completely avoiding them. There is no safe level of consumption, particularly okay. for processed meat like hot dog and bacon and that sort of yes. thing. Yes. Um, eating more plants, focusing on uh, legumes are incredibly protective, so I like my patients to eat calcium-rich legumes like Beautiful. beans and soybeans, etc. And you, whatever your risk profile. So at my clinic and at my hospital, if you come for a screening colonoscopy, like yes. your father does yes, every yes. two years, um, about two weeks, about two weeks later, in the post, you get a glossy, full-color brochure, right, explaining all of this. Amazing. Because as well as coming for screening colonoscopies. There's a bunch of other stuff you can do to to profoundly reduce your risk. Yes. And yes, avoiding alcohol and not smoking are also important. Yes, amazing. So do you think, is it absolutely necessary to have a gastroscopy and colonoscopy to determine your gut health? And if the result is a squeaky clean result, does that really mean that you're free from irritable bowel or leaky gut or anything else? So is it worth having these very invasive tests considering they may not be conclusive as to what's going on in the body? I think it is worth it okay. because unfortunately, um, if you have significant digestive health symptoms, yes, I would advocate always seeing your family doctor. Yep. And the reason for that is because serious diseases are relatively uncommon. I mean, your individual yes. risk might be relatively low, but they are quite prevalent. 
Right. And it's important. And when we're looking at diagnoses that could be something like colorectal cancer or a malignancy, yes. if something is detected early, the earlier the detection, the better. Right. So if you've seen, for example, blood in your poo, yes. go and have a chat with your doctor. Yes. Because even if your doctor knows, has never read any of the science that we've talked about today, and even if they're one of those doctors who thinks that food doesn't matter, they still know that blood in your poo is serious. Yes. And yeah. they will do a panel of blood tests. They might do a stool test. And depending on your overall story and symptomatology, they may refer you to a gastroenterologist to have some camera tests. Okay. And so I would view that as very important. If you've got significant symptoms, yes. you, you ought to go and have a chat with your doc. And I've been talking a lot this year at various conferences to doctors and medical professionals about the evidence, for example, about reducing colorectal cancer risk. Yes. And even improving one's prognosis after a colorectal cancer risk um, by adopting a healthy diet and lifestyle. But yes. a, a very important part of that message, of course, Vicky, is that low risk is not no risk. Yes. Um, so if you have symptoms, go and get checked out. If we look at the the Seventh-day Adventist community, yeah. Loma Linda, California yes. is a good example. Yep. So this is a genetically diverse yeah. community. Yes. The Blue Zone, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly, yes. right? Yeah. So they put a great emphasis on physical activity and family and community and faith and vegetarian eating. Yes. And even the, the Seventh-day Adventists who do consume animal products consume very little, um, less than 20 kilos of meat per year compared to... U.S. average of about 110 kilos per person per year. Yep. So among that population, they have very low risks mm. of heart disease and type 2 diabetes and obesity and other conditions that we think are inevitable, right? Yes, yes. They also have a reduced risk of colon cancer. Mm. And among the Seventh-day Adventists who eat meat, even though they eat very little meat, the risk of colorectal cancer compared to the background U.S. population is about 30% lower. Mm. And among the Seventh-day Adventists who don't eat meat at all, the risk reduction, I think, is about 32 or 36% lower. Right. So that's substantial. I mean, yes. in, the U in the U.K., we've got 42 thousand people diagnosed with colorectal cancer every year. Could we reduce that number by 30 or 40 or 50 percent? Mm. I think we can. Yes. But there's still, the, the disease still happens. Yes. So if you do have symptoms, please go and have a chat to your doc and get checked out. Absolutely. So if the result is squeaky clean, does that rule out any issue? Or could it be like at a cellular level or irritable bowel, irritable bowel or something like that? Because I've got well, a friend for who me, had a, Go on. Now, I've got a friend who had a test done and he's always rushing to the toilet and, um, you know, things irritate him. And he had a colonoscopy done and he was like, the doctor said to him, I don't need to see you pretty much ever again. You're, it's such a clean looking bowel or like intestines. Um, so what, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts on it is that um, gastroenterology is about more than doing a colonoscopy and a gastroscopy. Yes. Okay. And there are lots of different issues that can be causing problems everything from celiac disease to right. microscopic colitis to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth to, you know, even more subtle and rare conditions such as functional neuroendocrine um, tumors and things like that. Not to worry your friend, but I'm just speaking in general terms. Yes. Um, that if you have significant digestive health problems yes, and you've had the basic blood tests, you've had the colonoscopy and the endoscopy and your doctor has reassured you that nothing is wrong, yes. but if your quality of life is still terrible, yeah. then it's worth asking to be referred to a GI 
um, just to get into just to get, get into the rabbit hole, Vicky, and go, okay. you know, looking at other things and you know, digestive enzyme production, etc. Yeah. Um, so it, it's very individual, um, but it is definitely worth asking to be referred to a GI, and also just looking at other aspects of your life. Obviously, personal and emotional stress are a huge driver yes. of digestive symptoms as well. Definitely. The gut-brain connection is real. Yes. And I mean, I spend a lot of time at my clinic talking to patients what they can do to reduce their stress levels, whether yeah. that's just being selfish and taking some time out for themselves each day, getting home in the evening and switching off the emails, mm. switching off their screens, whether that's engaging in mindful uh, meditation. These things all help too because the, the gut-brain axis is real, you know, and uh, reducing your stress levels can yeah. also improve your digestive health. Totally. So, I mean, this sounds like an obvious one, but do you believe that gut health and diet play a role in one's longevity? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, I mean, there was a nice study um, published in the UK about two years ago, and it showed that individuals who have a healthy diet and lifestyle, and part of that, a really important part of that, is about eating the most fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts, and legumes, and having a high plant diet. What we saw was um, in the UK, if you tick all the right boxes for a healthy diet and lifestyle, which which will automatically give you good gut health as well yes. in general, yep. then the average female will have 10 and a half extra healthy years. Amazing. The average male will have about nine yeah. extra healthy years. So extra years free of major diseases. Perfect. And those are really, really important years. That could be the difference between seeing your grandchildren yes. go to primary <laughs> school and seeing them, you know, graduate university. Absolutely. So, uh, so, th- so the evidence is very clear. I often hear people saying, oh, look, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, cook food and eat a healthy plant-based diet and stop smoking and reduce my alcohol intake and take a little bit of exercise and maybe moderation will be good enough for me. And look, that's fine. But if you think that moderation is the way you want to go, if you want to have a moderately good quality of life and a moderately healthy life and a moderately long life expectancy, then that's fine. But I just want to make sure that people have the info, that they know the science, that they know how beneficial this can be. And once they have all the info, they can make their own decision. Absolutely. Exactly. So do you find a lot of people ignore signs and symptoms of disease? Um, you know, I mean, obviously, it's really easy to brush, brush something off as like indigestion or endometriosis or something they've eaten. Or do you find what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's harder to diagnose something, particularly if it's just a one off? Does it need to be something that's like causing them quite a bit of grief before they do explore it? It's very variable. Yeah, I think some people, um, men are terrible at this. Yes. Um, um, and I'm saying that as a man myself, um, we don't like going to see the doctor. I will often meet patients, uh, male patients who are in their 50s who have significant digestive health issues and they haven't seen their GP since they had their childhood vaccinations or their maybe their COVID wow. shot uh, yeah. in more recent times. So, yes, I think people are, some people are very reluctant to go and see their doctor. Yes. And maybe that's fear and maybe that's that, that feeling that, you know, okay, these conditions are very common, but it can't happen to me. Um, so it's, it's a normal human belief, isn't it? You know, that, yes. you know, okay, I, I, 
I've been losing weight. I've got dreadful abdominal pain and bloating and I'm using the bathroom 10 times a day. Yes. But I'll just power through. I'll yes. just power through because maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. Yep. And it, it's a shame because in most cases, there won't be a serious underlying health disorder. Right. Um, but if you do go to see a good GI and get checked out, as I said earlier, um, you may arrive at a diagnosis that can be addressed and having good digestive health can be transformative. I mean, I had a patient at clinic recently um, who, and I mean, this happens all the time at my clinic, but patients saying, not only do I feel normal now, but I feel more normal than I felt in years. Wow. And I'd forgotten what normal was like. So yes. it, it's certainly worth engaging with a health professional and maybe a registered dietitian. Um, if you have significant health problems, yeah. because they, they they may be able to help you to restore your quality of life, which is what we're all after, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, cancer such or any type of disease is, can be quite insidious, but what are the main signs and symptoms people should be looking, looking for if they do have something that's quite serious? Absolutely. I mean, uh, we, first of all, I mean, if we're talking about serious cancer type diagnoses, yeah. Um, these are things that we really worry about people, well, I used to say over the age of 50, but okay. in terms of colorectal cancer now, the demographics have changed as their diet and lifestyle changed, so over the age of 40. So things like unexplained abdominal pain, loss of appetite, weight loss, feeling full um, whilst eating a meal, suddenly not being able to eat a full meal that you used to be able to eat, um, having a tender point in your tummy. Yes. Or feeling like there's something hard inside your tummy. Yes. An unexplained change in your bowel habit where yes. you've gone from having, you know, your regular bowel habit to now having a very different bowel habit or stool consistency. Yes. Seeing blood or mucus in the toilet, of yes. course. Um, these are all symptoms that should prompt you to go and have a chat with your doc and they can have a chat with you, examine your tummy, take your family history, look at your risk factors. They may do some basic blood tests, full blood count, kidney function, liver function. Uh, they may do a blood test to check for celiac disease, which is a very common condition and is often on a standard panel of blood tests now at GP practices. They may even ask you to do some poop tests to yes. look for blood loss or to look for abnormal inflammation. And it's quite likely if your symptoms um, have any of what we doctors refer to as red flags, which yes. I've just summarized, it's quite likely that they'll refer you possibly for an abdominal ultrasound scan or a CT scan, or they may ask you to go see a GI just to get checked out. Yes. Okay. Interesting. I mean, in the uh, in Australia, we've, there's quite a lot of co collagen supplements, animal-based, um, that have been promoted for gut health and become quite popular of late. But I feel that health-conscious consumers have been fairly misguided and misled by this information. What's your opinion on animal mm. collagen supplements? Well, the concept of taking collagen supplements as a kind of a, you know, panacea for health has been around for millennia, right? Shark yes. fin, yep. fine collagen, uh, people eating, you know, animal hoofs and things like that. And for collagen and why that might sound a little bit icky to people, um, that's what animal-based collagen supplements are. Right. So they're ground up bones and yes. tendons or... Um, you know, fins or hoofs. I mean, that, that's what you're having or skin. It's ground up skin. Yes. So the it, it's kind of that kind of slightly magical thinking that in many ways has plagued uh, medicine, you know. Yes. So if I want to be strong like an ox, 
I should eat beef. Yeah, that's not true. That's right. If, if I want, to, if I want to have, um, you know, virility, I'm going to eat some piece of a vir- virile animal. Okay, <laughs> yes. uh, without being too explicit. Okay, yes, yeah. And if I if I want to have really good quality skin, yeah. I'll just eat skin. Yes, I'll eat lots of skin, <laughs> and then that will give me good skin. So it, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's the same thing. So so collagen is. Yeah, so people forget that humans are animals too. Yes. Um, so we, our bodies contain collagen. Yes. Um, our skin, 70% of the dry weight of human skin is collagen. Yes. It's um, a structural protein which our bodies manufacture. Yes. Just like everything else in our bodies. And the human body is pretty smart. We can take the amino acids yes. in our fruits, vegetables, whole grains and legumes. Um, we eat them. They get broken down into their constituent amino acids. So yes. if you eat a piece of collagen or a bean or a grain of rice, that gets broken down into its constituent amino acids. Yes. And then your body uses those building blocks to build the proteins yes. and peptides that make up your human body. Yes. Alongside everything else that makes up your human body. So you don't need to eat somebody else's skin in order to have healthy skin. That's right. Um, <laughs> so I think that's my verdict on that. And then, then I mean, the, I, I have seen some... Um, public health professionals expressing concerns about the fact that often um, these um, products might be sourced using some of the products that were banned from uh, from human consumption after the BSE um, crisis yeah. um, several years ago. And also that by their nature, um, things like bones and hooks um, tend to concentrate heavy metals from the yes. environment like cadmium. Um, so by having these foods... You, you might be unwittingly causing yourself some harm. Absolutely. No, I'm so happy to hear that because it, I feel like there's so many consumers who get ripped off because they also charge quite a lot for those products. So, um, yeah, just done a really good job of marketing it, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's, I mean, that's it. I mean, there's so much food confusion out there anyway. Yes. Um, but, you know, I mean, you, yeah, and I mean, the, the industry does a great job of marketing. This yes. Stuff. So, I, I mean, I'm not blaming people. I mean, people are flooded with information. Yes. I mean, you see, even, you know, a lot of online influencers will say, oh, yeah, thank you. I just got my collagen supplement. Yes. You know, I think some maybe one of the Kardashians was promoting collagen supplements. But you got to remember, that's a commercial arrangement. Absolutely. That, that person has been paid to promote a product. Absolutely. And their interest isn't your health. Yep. Um, it's the it's the bottom line. Exactly, exactly. Interesting. So tell us, I love you've coined the happiness effect, which is what you refer to quite a bit, and that's how diet affects our overall happiness and mental health. Explain that to the listeners, please. It's something I had to include in the book, Vicky, yeah. because it comes up all the time. I love it. Um, it well, I've been very fortunate um, as a doctor through public speaking, through challenges that we've run in my locality, and also through our um, online course, the Happy Gut course that I yes. run with my friends Stephen and David Flynn. Yes. Um, I've been very fortunate to help, um, I think probably, you know, much more than 10,000 people, so thousands of people wow. to make the switch to a plant-based diet, right? Brilliant. And when you check in with people as to how they're doing, happiness comes up all the time. Yes. So whether that person has made the switch to plants because they want to achieve a healthier body weight, reduce their blood pressure, reduce their impact on the environment, mm. or reduce the risk of a future zoonotic pandemic like COVID, yep. when you check in with them after five or six weeks, they usually say something like, 
I feel good. Yeah. I feel lighter. Yeah. I feel more energetic. I had a friend of mine who's a chef who made the switch to a plant-based diet um, about six months ago and I checked it with him. He said, you know, I'm being nicer to people. Yes. And it could just be that this happiness effect is because you know you're eating in a really healthy way yes. and spending more time in the kitchen always cheers me up. Chopping veg is very therapeutic. Yep. But there's a lot of reasons and a lot of science telling us why eating more plants might make you happier. So yes. when you take the animal products out of your diet, you're reducing your consumption of products that promote chronic inflammation and yes. have been linked to depression. Yes. Um, such as advanced glycation end products and arachidonic acid. Yep. And you're also increasing your intake of um, phytonutrients and antioxidants. Yes. Um, and the more of those in your bloodstream, the less likely you are to have psychological stress and depressive symptoms. Amazing. We also know that when we when we're eating a diet that is, you know, high in complex carbohydrates, yes. it also favorably affects the way our body uh, metabolizes tryptophan. Right. which is a substance our brains use to make the happy hormone serotonin. Ah. Serotonin um, is 5-hydroxytryptophan. Yeah, there you go. So if you're eating a, a high-complex-carb diet, you mobilize more tryptophan in your bloodstream, so you've got right. higher levels in your blood and your brain. And we've seen numerous studies out there showing you know, that this is a real effect. So um, one of the biggest meta-analyses on diet and psychological stress and depressive symptoms showed that people with a high total intake of fruits and vegetables do have higher levels of optimism, less stress, less depressive symptoms. Beautiful. And if you take someone who doesn't make it to their five five a day, that very kind of modest target, yeah. um, I think in Australia the target is eight servings a day, right, um, of fruits and vegetables. If you take someone and simply get them to eat more fruits and vegetables and get to eight servings a day, yes. it can have the same positive effect on their mental health as moving from being an unemployed person yes. to landing a new job. Amazing. And then... And then also the gut microbes, um, yeah. when you feed your gut microbes more plants, they produce more short-chain fatty acids. And they also um, will uh, produce and respond to neurohormones like serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine and GABA. Um, so there's lots of science Amazing. there showing us why food and a healthy gut microbiome helps us to feel happier. And yeah, it's something that comes up in my practice all the time, which is why we had to put it in the book. Yes, it's brilliant. Amazing. Lucky last question for you. What are your top three tips to living a longer, stronger, happier and healthier life? Well, look, number one, eat a whole food plant-based diet. Yes. I, I got to say it. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. We've just been talking about <laughs> it for the last hour or whatever. So that's absolutely crucial. Yep. Number two, fostering a sense of community. I yes. mean, we're just coming out of a period of enforced social social isolation. Yes. If you're lucky enough to live somewhere um, where you are now able to get out in person and communicate with people, just rekindle those relationships yeah. because having close personal friendships and friends who can support you is an independent predictor um, of having a longer and healthier life. And why not now? I mean, there's never been a better time to exactly. join the plant-based diet revolution. Why not hook up with a few friends yes. and say, hey, let's do this we can come to each other's homes for meals now yes. let's let's get on this and that's just sharing food and meeting up and fostering a sense of community is incredibly important yes and then my third thing is just to spend time outdoors in mm -hmm. natural environments yep. so human beings natural environment yep. is woods and countryside yes. and beaches yep. and the data showing that spending time in natural environments 
benefits our our uh, mental health and yes. our overall health is compelling. And of course, the gut microbes that are our crucial allies on our journey to better health, they don't just enjoy a variety of plants in our diet, Vicky. They also enjoy and benefit from us spending time in that natural does. environments. Yes. Because that's where our gut microbes come from. Absolutely. They come from our surroundings. Yes. So spending time in nature would have to be my number three tip. Amazing. Incredible. So tell us, where can people find you? Um, if you look on Instagram, just look for Dr. Alan Desmond. You'll find me there. Yes. Um, I'm a, a very busy full-time uh, doctor. <laughs> so I'm not yeah. across all platforms, Vicky. I'm That's generally okay. just on Instagram. You might find me on Facebook too. And if you're looking for the book, you can get it anywhere that books are sold. So Excellent. it's obviously on Amazon, but also all the major booksellers should have it. Um, it's in Australia, New Zealand, the US, Europe, uh, the UK, Ireland. Uh, book depository will ship it worldwide. Or why not just ask your local bookstore or library to order a copy for you? Amazing. Incredible. And I do recommend checking out um, Alan's Instagram page. There's always lots of great food inspiration on there as well. Thank you so much for your time, Alan. You are such a wealth of knowledge and so passionate. It's been very refreshing talking to you and uh, wish you have a wonderful day and we look forward to chatting to you again soon. Vicky, thanks very much for having me on. I totally appreciate and appreciate your time and all you're doing to kind of spread the word among your network. So thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow me on our YouTube channel, One Body, One Life, to see more inspirational videos to help you reach optimal wellness and longevity. But until next time, don't forget, you've got to nourish to flourish.